Former President Trump's new co-defendant, his longtime employee, Carlos de Oliveira, is set to be arraigned in a federal court in Miami at 10.30 a.m. on Monday. And then on Tuesday, the grand jury that special counsel Jack Smith has been using in his investigation into Trump's attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, that jury is expected to meet again, which could mean more testimony or it could mean a possible indictment. And as much as everyone is and has been holding their breath to see what happens in that investigation. Let's be clear that special counsel Jack Smith took us all by surprise yesterday with a new superseding indictment in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. And that new indictment offers a potentially valuable clue about what we might see in Smith's other indictment, should it actually happen. All sorts of information in the Mar-a-Lago case seems to come from a witness referred to as employee number two. The indictment notes that one of Trump's alleged co-conspirators, Walt Nauda, and employee number two, brought boxes of classified documents from the storage room to Trump's residence for review, starting as far back as November of 2021. Nauta and employee number two then texted back and forth for months about the movement of those boxes. Now, Nauta is listed as a co-conspirator in this indictment, in, in part because he lied to the FBI about those movements, those movements of boxes. But what about employee number two? Why isn't that employee also indicted? Could it be that employee number two did not lie? And does that mean that employee number two is cooperating? Well, the New York Times has identified employee number two as a woman named Molly Michael, Trump's former executive assistant. Now, NBC has not independently verified that reporting, but if that is indeed the case, her potential cooperation would be a huge deal, and not just in the Mar-a-Lago case. As Trump's executive assistant, Molly Michael sat directly outside Trump's office while he was president. She connected his calls, and she kept his schedule. Trump famously does not use email himself, but he does still need to read and send emails because he lives in the 21st century. So for a lot of the end of Trump's presidency, when some of the totally crazy stuff was allegedly happening— if someone wanted to email President Trump, they would just email Molly Michael. So she was a fly on the wall. She was very much in the, in, in the loop, in the inner circle. And Molly Michael could be an incredible witness. When the House January 6th committee investigated the origins of Trump's plans for January 6th, there was a lot of focus on this date, December 23rd. That day, Trump lawyer John Eastman ginned up a two-page memo summarizing ways to ensure, quote, that President Trump is reelected. And in that memo, Eastman suggested that Vice President Pence could simply refuse to count the Electoral College votes from seven states. And we now know those states to be the states that were ultimately involved in Trump's fake elector plot. That was an important memo in terms of this plot. Eastman's thinking was that eliminating those seven states would take enough Electoral College votes off the table that Pence could then just gavel in Trump as reelected. Well, the same day that Eastman cooked up that plan, December 20, 28th, 23rd, that same day, John Eastman sent an email to Molly Michael, quote, is the president available for a very quick call today at some point? Just want to update him on our overall strategic thinking. Five minutes later, Mr. Eastman got a call from the White House switchboard, a call that lasted 23 minutes. Molly Michael could be a heck of a potential witness. 
And that would be a new development because Ms. Michael did not seem to be the most helpful witness in the House January 6th committee's investigation. In reference to the actual day of January 6th, Molly Michael was present in the Oval Office for the afternoon that day. But the committee seemed to note with some frustration that she claimed not to remember nearly anything from one of the most memorable days in recent American history. And Molly Michael's testimony to the committee is filled with, I do not recall, I'm not sure I recall, I do not specifically recall. Her lawyers during that investigation were from former Trump lawyer Mark Kasowitz's law firm. We do not know if that means that Trump and his organizations were paying Molly Michael's legal bills, and we don't know if he is paying them now. But if Molly Michael is indeed employee number two and she is talking, what could that portend for both of Jack Smith's investigations. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, a former senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team and co-host of the essential podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. I don't say that with exaggeration. I listen, I, I'm like, when is a new episode coming out? I need to know what I need to be thinking Today. about. Well, that's, <laughs> and that's a great promo. Andrew, I mean, there's so much we don't know about employee number two. But just hypothetically, if if Jack Smith has someone like Molly Michael, who is employee number two, could he feasibly use that person if they are cooperating in both investigations? Is that done? Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, So there are people who could have information that's relevant to the January 6th case and what led up to that. And they could also have information that's relevant to the documents case. So, for instance, Mark Meadows, um, you know, he presumably would have sort of the keys to the kingdom. And and so you definitely could have a cooperator who has information on both. You would definitely need to be fully cooperating. You can't just be like, I'm going to tell you the truth about this and not that. That makes the person completely unusable and they may have their own exposure, meaning they could be prosecuted. What, What strikes me about employee number two is how deep the federal investigators have penetrated into the inner sanctum of Trump world. And not just with the names that we know, right? Not just the Mark Meadows and the Rudy Giuliani's, right. but with these aides, these sort of flies on the wall, the people in the background that were there for that were literally sending emails on behalf of the president. I mean, that to me seems like a wealth of of information that is going to be critical in proving their overall case. So this is pretty typical in a white collar case. You have people who are sort of senior people and there are lots of people around them. And that's as a prosecutor, that's where you go. Um, You start there. Um, And those people, presumably some of them Mm -hmm. may tell you the truth because they're concerned about their own exposures. Some maybe like Cassidy Hutchinson, which is they were brought up well, which is they believe in the mirror test, which is going home and being able to look yourself in the mirror. Obviously, there are other people, and that appears to be the case with Mr. Nauda or Mr. Delavery, who were there concerned more about loyalty to their boss, about money, about their future. Um, And they're thinking, you know what, I might be able to escape because I might get a pardon or, you know, some other relief down the road. So there's a whole variety of people with a whole variety of motives. And when you're a prosecutor, it's figuring that out. Well, it's figuring out the humanity that undergirds each of their positions, right? Exactly. Uh, I have to ask you, because I think this is of particular relevance to your experience. The New York Times is up with a new piece. It's a long piece comparing what we're learning in terms of obstruction in the Mar-a-Lago case with the obstruction of that was detailed in the Mueller report. And I'll read right. you um, 
I'll read you some excerpts from it. John Bolton in the piece calls Trump's approach obstruction as a way of life and that the lead investigator in the Mueller investigation, Andrew Goldstein, um, says the superseding indictment in Mar-a-Lago, the one that we got yesterday, is a clearer example of criminality than what Mueller, what we found in the Mueller case. And it makes it easier to show criminal intent. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean, it's a little hard um, because I would say I know all of the details with respect to the Mueller investigation, and we only have the indictment, so we have to wait a lot right. more, you know, sort of meat on the bones. But there is nothing more classic than somebody saying, let's destroy evidence when there's a pending subpoena. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, I think, John Bolton's comment about this being a way of life, I mean, that is the, the through line. You have obstruction. Just take the former president's comments to Don McGahn, the then White House counsel, which is, I need you to create a fake document saying something that's not true. And he was basically, I'm out. Yeah. I'm not doing that. Zelensky, what the, what the former president was doing there was basically saying, I need you to gin up a fraud investigation because I'm going to use that to defraud the American people and say there's a pending investigation with respect to Joe Biden. We're talking now about an indictment with two, not one, but two schemes to obstruct justice. And we're about to see a charge by Jack Smith for obstruction on a much larger scale. It is not going to be just getting rid of documents or lying to the government. It is going to be an obstruction of Congress overthrowing the will of the people. So if you look at this as sort of all of these different types of obstruction that the former president has engaged in. Well, and embedded in the Times piece is a reason offered for how and why this obstruction gets more flagrant as time goes on. Effectively, that Trump viewed the conclusion of the Mueller investigation as vindication of his behavior, which became increasingly emboldened. That he basically, he, I mean, he, I know you disagree, but he viewed, because there were no particular political implications for him, he viewed it as a vindication. And therefore, the obstruction, the acts of fraud became ever more flagrant, blatant, and uh unchecked, it seems. I mean, a vindication, not that we found, vindicated him, but in terms of from his point of view, he had no political consequences. I would actually go back further. I mean, you have somebody who has lived for decades and has managed to skate with no consequences legally. And so this is really an unusual situation for him because he is now out of control of the situation in two uh, courtrooms, uh, you know, soon to, I think, be four courtrooms. That is going to be an unusual experience where he it's not just a civil case where he can sort of buy his way out of it because it's just talking about money. Uh, and I but I think it's really a lifetime. So I would go back further than, you know, just the Mueller investigation in terms of yeah. his lesson in terms of how to deal with these things. Yeah. And the Times effectively says it's a long pattern of gamesmanship on his part with prosecutors, regulators and others, yeah. others being basically anyone that Trump came across in his career as a businessman. Oh, I don't know, as a husband, as a father. There's just so many levels of deception. Right. Um, and it's all sort of culminating in this moment here where he's being held to account. Now, I know. We're talking about the airtightness of this Mar-a-Lago case. Ty Cobb, the president's former lawyer, said, this is such a tight case. The evidence is so overwhelming. It is engineered to last an antiquity. Maybe he meant an eternity or maybe he meant into (laughs) reverse time, into antiquity, back into the days of ancient Egypt. I'm not I'm not sure what he meant other than this thing is. We get the drift. We get the drift, Ty Cobb. This thing is meant this thing is looks good. And yet. To an American public that has watched this president skate by 
so many times. I mean, do do will you put your money on where, you know, the same the same square that Ty Cobb is putting his money on? Well, so you have to see what the president's long term plan for this is to win the presidency and then the case goes away. Right. Um, so that is not uh, that is not fighting this in terms of the facts and the law. This is an extrajudicial remedy. Uh, in terms of the case, I mean, it is hard to not see this as very strong. I mean, you, know, you don't have to be you go to law school to be like he had classified documents. He was hiding them. They were found after an FBI search. You have people who say he lied to me and told me to lie to the government about this. He told me to get rid of tapes and surveillance tapes. I mean, this is this is a pretty rudimentary, obvious scheme. It doesn't. This is one where I think a jury is not going to be like, okay, this is an arcane issue, and why <laughs> should novel. I care? And and there, just this sort of, why should I care? I mean, all you have to do is look at the description of the classified documents, and and I mean, you do, I was in the intelligence community. I don't think you need to be to understand how much this hurts the American public and our safety. So, I mean, to my mind, this case kind of has everything. I, I, and I am, didn't go to law school and I'm not an investigator. <laughs> I, I check all those boxes. Right. But why does Jack Smith keep investigating this? I mean, I understand there's like sort of a reason to have the superseding indictment. Well, because the, you know, the narrative is pretty damning, but also it allows the introduction of this Bedminster tape to be used in a Florida court. That seems important. Yeah. But yeah. why continue to investigate? Honestly, he has January 6th to focus on. This is kind of an open and shut thing. Like adding witnesses, adding indictments, this slows it down, this drags it out, this maybe won't even go to trial before yeah. the summer. Yeah, so there's, there's no question the downside of, of doing this was the risk that a new defendant will say, I need more time. Exactly. Um, you know, there, there's something that happened today that I think is going to help Jack Smith, which is Alvin Bragg was on the radio saying essentially, you know, I'm open to, if needed, to essentially moving my trial date and talking to the judge. The reason that could be relevant is I can see there's going to be an argument now in Florida about the trial date. Um, Aileen Cannon was very interested in the fact that there was a March date. Mm. And, you know, they're going to be using that to say, look, if that's your concern, you know, you picked May because you knew it couldn't be before then because of that March trial. Um, this is, you know, that that date can move if you're concerned about preparation time. So it sort of adds an extra sort of chess piece to the board. Um, and then why you do this? Yes, the Bedminster tape, I think, was an absolute. I thought that was like something really good to do. Um, but sometimes new evidence comes up. It is really hard to ignore that when you're built as a prosecutor and you get a piece that says, you know what, there's additional obstruction that's going on. It's really hard to say, you know what, I'm going to ignore that and not present that to the jury. Yes. Well, a shushing emoji and a secret audio closet conversation. That's a bit too juicy to pass exactly. Jack Smith. Andrew Weissman, always so good to see you. Thank you for your time and exhaustion after doing three shows on MSNBC tonight. Have a great weekend. You Still too. to come this evening, one of Trump's most frequent attacks against Hillary Clinton takes on new meaning when you compare it to the behavior later out in this new Mar-a-Lago indictment. We're going to talk about that with former Trump fixer Michael Cohen up next. Hey, 
everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. One of the central ironies of Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents is that Trump himself was elected president after attacking Hillary Clinton over her handling of classified documents. And he accused Clinton of trying to cover it up by destroying evidence in an unorthodox way. Hillary Clinton and her top aides knowingly destroyed evidence and covered up their actions. Her staff deleted all the emails and wiped it clean. She bleached her emails. Nobody even heard about it before. She bleached, which somebody said they never even heard of, used chemical so that nobody will ever be able to see him. Who does this? Now, to be clear, Hillary Clinton did not bleach her private email server, whatever that means. Trump appears to have confused the name of a software tool called BleachBit, with the household cleaning product he would later promote as a cure for COVID. And the FBI never found any reason to believe Hillary Clinton tried to destroy evidence. But the point here is that the thing Trump falsely accused Hillary Clinton of doing is exactly what Jack Smith has just accused Donald Trump of doing, conspiring to wipe a private server in order to destroy evidence. It is the kind of projection that we have seen time and again from Donald Trump. He accused Hillary Clinton of corrupt business practices and misusing her charities. He accused Joe Biden of blackmailing the Ukrainian government and trying to steal an election. All things that Trump himself has been charged with or sued over or impeached for. Many, many of the things he accuses someone else of doing is something Trump himself has either done or might do. Or, as my colleague Mehdi Hassan puts it, every accusation is a confession. And nobody knows more about that side of Trump than my next guest. Michael Cohen is a former lawyer and fixer for President Trump. He is the host of the podcasts Mea Culpa and Political Beatdown and the author of Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics. Michael, thank you so much for joining me this Friday night. Good to see you, Alex. Sorry to take you away from dinner. Uh, that's okay. For you, for you, anything. <laughs> oh, I mean, this is, I think, a little bit more important than just dinner with yeah, the wife. You know, we all have our we all have our standards. Um First of all, this indictment that we just got from Jack Smith, the superseding indictment, is, I think, really illustrative for the American public of a certain kind of behavior and mentality. To be sure, we've heard some of some of this behavior before, but the the notion that Trump is lobbying these accusations at people 
for crimes that he himself may be guilty of. Is that something, this notion of every accusation is a confession, is that something that you saw in your time with Mr. Trump? With Donald, it's projection and deflection. Just take a look at my book as an example. Revenge. How Donald Trump weaponized the United States Department of Justice against his critics. Right. Well, what is Donald Trump doing? He's using the second part of the title of my book. Well, what is Joe Biden administration doing to me? He's weaponizing Weaponizing. the Department of Justice against me. Right. Your favorite president. It's always about deflection and it's always about projection because he believes that everyone is as guilty and as underhanded as he. And so he wants to be first to the line. Do you when you it's a real psychosis? Yeah, it's a very specific psychology. And the other part of it is the almost mafia like organization that you see uh, detailed in this indictment. The notion that he has these lay people, as it were, the maintenance worker, the I.T. guy, the valet, all doing his bidding. And it is almost like they are doing this bidding out of a sense of loyalty or fear or both. That seems to be the organizing principle at the Trump organization as well. Is that a fair character? It's also something I've talked about that Donald Trump speaks in mob code. And yes, the sense of loyalty or in organized crime, it would be called omerta, code of silence. Either you are loyal to Donald with your entire being or you're not there. And that's how everybody was from the children all the way down to the front doorman. It didn't make a difference. You pledge your loyalty to him. If he asks you to do something you don't ask why. What you do is you do it. Now, I was in a little bit of a different situation. I would have quite a few conversations with him. This may not be the best move. Most of the time he would ignore the advice. Every now and then he would accept the advice, but he doesn't accept the advice from you. He accepts it. It's his advice. And then he alters his decision. He has to believe it's his. It's always got to be his. But with 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 these sort of lower level Mar-a-Lago aides who are being named as co-conspirators, Trump is paying the legal bills for some of them. (laughs) You know, I just finished a lawsuit with him on that. Um, As long as they stay on message, he will continue to pay the bill. Or let's rephrase that. His unwitting supporters who he's grifting off of will be paying those bills. Right. He's soliciting donations. Of course. And once that stops, once you stop being loyal, specific to him and following his message, well, now you get cut off. And it's not that it's not just that the legal bills become yours. The headaches all become yours as well, because he exacerbates them by doing the things that he does best which is on social media attacks and so on. What is it like, though? I mean, as someone that worked for Donald Trump, had representation paid for by Donald Trump and then flipped on Donald Trump. What is that decision like when you make the calculation? I can't I'm going to have to get my own counsel. I'm not going to be able to pay for those bills. How am I going to do this? But I cannot look at myself in the mirror and go along doing the bidding for this man who's criminally guilty of who's guilty of unethical, if not criminal behavior. I mean, what is that calculation like? It's very difficult. First of all, in my case, it wasn't about the money. Um, you know, it's it's a whole nother thing. You can read it in the book. It's It wasn't about the money. It was more about the loyalty. I had spent a decade with him, a little more than even a decade. 
And there's a sense of loyalty and it's almost like a sense of responsibility that you have for keeping him in line. But truth be told, as his sister, Judge Barry once said to me, nobody can do that. Mm. All right. He's impossible. And there's no way that anybody can keep him in line when he makes up his mind on something. And his decision is not predicated on a sense of reality, a sense of morals, ethics, or right or wrong. It's, it's what he believes is right for him. And that's the only thing that matters. But what, I guess the reason I bring the financial aspect is because these the folks that we're talking about, Walt Nauda and Yusil Tavares and Carlos de Oliveira, these guys don't have a lot of money, right? They're working, you know, they're not lawyers. And I would imagine that they are concerned about footing legal bills. Well, and- they better be because all of these legal bills add up very quickly yes. into the millions. And whether it's Donald's responsibility to pay for it based upon indemnification clauses and so on, that doesn't matter. What matters is that as long as you want me to continue to pay for those bills, you stay on message. And the second that you deviate in a way that I determine, meaning Donald, I determine that I don't like it, you're cut off and you're excommunicated. I mean, it's almost like John Wick, excommunicado. <laughs> Does, is that made, that's made explicit when you, when you get your legal bills paid by Donald Trump. Yes. You better be loyal or else. Yeah, well, he over. doesn't say it to you. Again, it's like a mob boss. They don't come out and say it to you explicitly. You just find out and you know that that's going to happen. Like these two gentlemen, right? Um, uh, De Oliveira oh, and Tavares. They have to understand because it's been all over the news. My lawsuit. So they know what he did to me for some unknown reason, like Walt Nada. I've said on television, on MSNBC and other programs, I've said run because look at what's happened to me. And history always repeats itself, especially in Donald Trump's orbit. So look at what he did to me. Do you think that you're special? Do you think that you're going to be the one that he actually is going to care about? The answer is no. He would throw his own kids under the bus when it comes to a legal bill if they do something wrong or they say something that he doesn't agree with. They'd be on their own, too. Well, these are calculations they are going to have to make in the coming days because they are now co-conspirators in a trial with Donald Trump for a federal criminal indictment. Michael Cohen, thank you so much for your time and thoughts. Great to see you. Up next, the Republican plan to deal with yet another indictment of the party's leader. The plan is impeach Joe Biden. Former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is here to talk about that. Don't go anywhere. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. 
would be beyond obstruction because I know I can't take that document out of the skiff. So he is a president. He is a, when he was a senator, he took a document. How many years is that? And there's been no prosecution. Donald Trump has been charged now with 40 criminal counts, including obstruction of justice and willful retention of classified documents. And congressional Republicans would like to focus on Joe Biden and his Senate papers. Now, Biden has handed these documents back and he has not been charged with anything. But Donald Trump, again, has been charged with 40 criminal counts in just one set of indictments. But this apparently is the plan that House Republicans have put together to deal with this current crisis. Deflection. Republicans have set forth dueling resolutions to impeach President Biden for not handling the southern border to their liking. The House Oversight Committee is conducting an investigation into the Biden family's financial dealings. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now raising the prospects of an impeachment inquiry as the Oversight Committee struggles to find evidence of an alleged bribery scheme involving President Biden and a foreign national. I haven't seen an administration act this way at the same time as Nixon did by withholding information. If we do not, if they do not provide the information we need, then we would go to an impeachment inquiry. Impeachment inquiry, which simply is an investigation and providing Congress the power to do that investigation. So that is their whole plan. That's the plan to deal with the fact that the head of the Republican Party is now facing two criminal trials and possibly a third in the coming week. My friend and colleague Jen Psaki will join me to talk about the strategy on display here. That's next. Does all of this legal stuff he's facing disqualify him, though, in your view? At the end of the day, voters make that decision. Okay. Some people to ask me, like, well, if somebody's indicted, sh should they be able to run? The problem is we've seen political indictments. I mean, I think Bragg was political. You have these other these people. So that would just give any prosecutor the ability to, to render someone ineligible. So I've not said that. But I also think just at the end of the day, the election's got to be about the future. At the end of the day, I don't want to have to talk about that thing that is sort of in the past, but not really. It's also in the future. By now, it is clear that Republican presidential candidates do not have any kind of coherent plan on how to handle Trump's mounting legal troubles ahead of the 2024 election. In fact, most of them, from Nikki Haley to Mike Pence, are trying to avoid this topic altogether. House Republicans, on the other hand, have a plan. Kind of. And that plan is to downplay Trump's legal peril by talking about President Biden. Joining me now is Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary and current host of Inside with Jen Psaki right here on MSNBC, a woman who is pull pulling, I will call it triple duty, <laughs> hosting for Chris Hayes, doing your show and also doing mine. We are so deeply grateful. And, and our children. Don't forget about also, them. Also, they're a small mom. part of our jobs. Who are they? Um, Jen, the real, okay, first of all, Ron DeSantis, there's so much to talk about in terms of the there Republican There were a lot of words just said in that clip. A they, lot of words. They don't go together. They, they, they have no strategy. The only people who have a strategy, if you can call it that, are the Republicans under Kevin McCarthy's leadership who only want to talk about impeaching Biden. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's a good strategy, but it's a strategy. And my question to you is, what do you think the White House thinks of all this? I don't think the White House is terribly worried about it. Uh, one... 
they did think that there would be actually a much more aggressive and effective, I should say, strategy to impeach plenty of cabinet members, mm. maybe the president, all sorts of people earlier this year. They hired a bunch of smart communications people and strategists at different agencies to prepare for that. But they couldn't really get their acts together. They're literally like sitting around ready to man the phones. They're ready. And there's nothing They're to ready do. with their phones and everything. Exactly. Uh, it's clearly very political. I think they, of course, you have to take everything seriously. Right. But this is a case where even, and I thought this was so interesting, the, I think it was the Washington Post, some, some outlet reported this week that vulnerable Republicans in the House do not want McCarthy to move forward with this. Yes. And that is generally who you listen to when you're speaker and you want to remain speaker. So he's moving forward with this, and this is an awkward problem for Kevin McCarthy. He's moving forward with this because he wants to, you know, appease his Donald Trump, but he's going to have all these members as this proceeds who are like, hey, man, I want to keep my seat. You want to keep being speaker. Exactly. You know, and the White House knows that, too. They understand the politics of all of this and that this isn't entirely easy for Kevin McCarthy to proceed on. Yes. And that's probably an understatement. Nothing in Kevin McCarthy's life is entirely easy. But we played that Ron DeSantis sound in the beginning for for a reason. And that is to illustrate just the ridiculous bind that Republican Mm. presidential candidates find themselves in. Uh, Will Hurd, who is not running for president, but is a former Republican congressman, is at the Iowa dinner, the Iowa Lincoln dinner, which is occurring tonight. Mm -hmm. And just there's a moment that everybody should be made aware of where Will Hurd dares to say the quiet part out loud. Let us play this this soundbite for our audience. Donald Trump is not running for president to make America great again. Donald Trump is not running for president to represent the people that voted for him in 2016 and 2020. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect, I know, I know, I know, I know. The truth is hard. That's how that ends. He says the truth is hard. I mean, that's what's so shocking is there is a sense that underneath it all, they know what's going on. But he's the only person that wants to say it out loud. Well, to be fair, Chris Christie, who wasn't there, sure. is been saying that versions of this. Asa Hutchinson has been saying this, but none of them are polling above double digits. So the challenge is, yes, it would be helpful to taking Donald Trump down if all the Republican candidates maybe were echoing this. Maybe. But we haven't seen this impact Trump to date in the polls. I just I guess I kind of wonder, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, how much Republicans think they are going to be on the like that they're making. They're not taking out any insurance policies that this actually matters. Do you know what I mean? They're yeah. not they're not they're not really looking forward to the potential that Trump could actually be convicted on any of this. And if and when that happens, where do you go from here after you've sent, spent the entirety of your political care, recent political career? basically undermining the the work of federal prosecutors. Well, I mean, I, I can't get in the heads of all their yes. mi- minds of all their heads. It's a scary place. But, I mean, a lot of them seem to be running to be vice president, maybe yeah. to be a cabinet member, I, I guess. Ron DeSantis has said he doesn't want to be vice president. I have no idea what on earth Mike Pence is running for. That's a separate question for a different block. But, you know, they don't, they either think that the electorate is going to wake up one day and there's no evidence of this and think, you know what? He's got too much baggage. And the Republican accountability can't, you know, that group is running ads that say basically that. Maybe it worked. Who knows? But 
the electorate has not done that to date. So they're either running that one day they're going to wake up and be like, you know what, Ron DeSantis doesn't have as much baggage. I'm going to pick him. That hasn't happened yet. Or they're running to be his running mate or a cabinet position, it yeah. seems. I, well, the, I mean, and if you're not running for president, if you're a Republican in Congress that's trying to just survive this, the answer other than impeach Biden, I can't comment on the indictment, yeah. is leave town. I mean, today, the House Republicans when it the house went into recess one day early and the conventional wisdom is that they did so so they wouldn't actually have to answer questions about the indictment of course because reporters are everywhere in the hallway asking them questions and this is such an important point i said this earlier today to my team is like this, they never leave early. It's not just that they left a day early. They're always there late because typically they are negotiating something, a spending bill, a component of appropriations, some other piece of legislation someone wants to get done. It's always a grind into August when you're on Capitol Hill because it never feels like it's ending. And now they're like, see you later. We <laughs> have good. how many different appropriations bills we have to pass before the government shut yes. down. But OK, bye. Yes, Don't exactly. ask us about the indictment. Never have the I word. Un- Very telling. Unbelievable. Jen Psaki, pulling triple duty. Such a good friend. Thank you, my friend. The host of Inside with Jen Psaki, which, of course, airs Sundays at noon on MSNBC. Thank you so much for your energy and wisdom and brilliance. We have one more story for you tonight. Body bags filled with ice for people who are alive. More on that coming up right, right next. Okay, it's a good chance that wherever you are right now, it is hot. This is what you would have been seeing if you were on a highway in Minnesota on Tuesday, the pavement literally buckling from the extreme heat, which is not something that you want to drive on. If you were in Arizona, you might know that hospitals have kept their freezers stocked with ice to fill up inflatable beds to cool down patients who have overheated. This is not a normal thing. Some hospitals in the state are even using ice-filled body bags to cool down patients. Again, very much not normal. And it is all tied to the fact that in Arizona, there have been over 25 consecutive days of temperatures over 110 degrees. In fact, it has been so hot in that state that doctors are seeing a spike in patients who were burned after falling onto the pavement from heat exhaustion. The situation is so dire that Maricopa County Medical Examiner's Office has brought in additional refrigerated coolers to hold bodies because they are concerned about a surge in the number of heat-related deaths. More than 180 million people across this country are living under heat alerts today. And against this backdrop, people being burned by the scorching earth as they collapse from heat exhaustion, against that backdrop, Republicans in the House are poised to make deep cuts to the very programs aimed at combating the devastating effects of climate change. Joining me now is David Wallace-Wells, opinion writer for The New York Times and author of The Uninhabitable Earth. David, thanks for being here tonight. I, I kind of wonder what you make of the political disconnect between these constituents who are feeling the, some of the worst effects of climate change and their representatives who are doing everything in their power to undo the measures that have been put in place to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. Well, I'd like to think... That, that Project 2025 plan that you're mentioning about undoing all the climate um, legislation. I'd like to think that that's rhetorical posturing. It doesn't seem to me to be a morally serious response to the state of the world or the state of the country at the moment. Um, I, I simply don't want to believe that it's possible to be a serious effort at legislating. 
And I would like to believe that if it, if a serious effort were made in that direction, uh, voters would punish their leaders for it. This is a very, very extreme and even scary time in the country for weather disasters. Um, the temperatures are really off the charts. We're seeing an extreme heat wave that was unthinkable, according to climate scientists, just a few years ago, now being perhaps a once a decade event. And I'd bet on it being a little more frequent than that, because last year, more than 100 million Americans were under heat alerts, too. And last summer in Europe, 61,000 Europeans died because of the heat. So we're heading into some quite scary territory and any efforts to peel back our, you know, our progress on, on climate mitigation, I think, is deeply, deeply irresponsible. And I'd like to think that the country's eyes are open enough to see that clearly, no matter what political persuasion the voters are. Well, and you would hope that that would be the case, right? Because the effects of this heat are so palpable everywhere, red states, blue states, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. You can see when the sidewalk is buckling. You understand what it's like to walk out into 110 degree temperatures 25 days in a row. And I wonder if that that reality of what constituents are feeling is the thing that shakes people loose of these ridiculous partisan affiliations that prevent them from seeing the obvious, which is that climate change is here. Having said that, David, we are also in a vicious cycle, as the Washington Post points out, which is as the heat waves ramp up, we burn more fossil fuels. The air conditioners do not power themselves on solar yet. And so or mostly and and we're consuming more gas than we ever have before. I mean, is there an end to that vicious cycle in sight or are we destined to exacerbate the conditions that are putting us here to begin with? Well, I think in the relatively medium term, we can say that, yes, we should be getting much cleaner electricity from the grid so that when we turn on our air conditioners, we won't be drawing on fossil fuels. I think you can, you know, that date will be at different points depending on where you live in the country. But over the next decade or so, I think it will be true for most, if not all of the country that using air conditioners in times of extreme heat won't also be making the problem worse for future generations at the same time. And we've seen already um, in many parts of the country that, in fact, it's the additional um, capacity of renewables that's been added just over the last couple of years that has enabled grids that would otherwise be buckling under the demand actually stay online. And so we would probably, in an universe when we hadn't been rolling out renewables as quickly as we have the last couple of years, we'd probably also be seeing a bunch of blackouts um, in a summer like this. And that's really quite scary because, um, you know, all those people who wouldn't have access to air conditioning, it makes the heat even more intense, even more potentially lethal. So on some level, we already have renewables to thank for a slightly softer experience of this intense summer. I'd like to think that five years from now, 10 years from now, we wouldn't even have to think in terms of that ugly bargain because all of our electricity, or at least nearly all of it, would be clean. But we're not there yet, which means for now, every time we do flick on the switch, you know, we're still inflicting a cost, imposing a burden on the future. Um, local officials, including mayors uh, from around the country, want these heat extremes to be categorized as a federal uh, a federal disaster. Is that the right call, given the fact that this is all in all likelihood going to be going an ongoing situation for us to be grappling with? My own feeling is that, you know, most of the measures that are going to be taken in response to these hazards are going to be initiated locally. It would be nice to have those, um, you know, those those officers and those offices well funded. It would be nice to know that they have the support of the federal government. Um, but it's not primarily, I think, going to be a, a federal response. It's going to be a local response. What we really need is an understanding um, at the all levels, from the rhetorical through the political down to the individual, that we're living in a very different world. And we're not going to be able to respond to the threats of this new world in the same way or um, of the same scale that we responded to threats of the past. And we need every 
policymaker and every leader at every level to understand that quite clearly, to talk to their constituents about it quite clearly, quite frankly, and to make medium and long-term investments so that the infrastructure of 2030 or 2035 can handle the actual weather of 2030 or 2035. And we don't find ourselves staring you know, at this incredibly horrifying gap between what our local communities can um, adapt to and can endure and what they can't. David Wallace-Wells, thanks always for your time and thoughts tonight, David. Really appreciate it. That is our show for tonight. And a quick note to all of you who heard that last block. Will Hurd is, of course, running for president, but he is polling at close to zero percent. So is he really running for president? I'm kidding.